Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Bloom. Paul is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University and he's fascinated in the development and nature of our common sense understanding of ourselves and other people. Much of his research explores moral psychology, looking at morality in babies, are developing intuitions about moral responsibility and the role that anger, disgust and empathy play in our moral lives. He's won numerous awards for his research and teaching. He's written for scientific journals and popular outlets such as the New York Times and The Guardian and is the author of, is it seven or is it eight books now? I'm, I'm confused. It's um, seven, two edited, five written. Well, seven, eight, whatever, a lot of books and including his latest title, which we're going to delve into, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. Now, I think this is it's, it, this is a it's, it's a fascinating topic. Like, I, I I really enjoyed researching this one because, um, like many people believe. I mean, I guess the word empathy has almost become um, sort of uh, uh like it, it's we're almost like you know it's almost like a buzzword now. Empathy, empathy is good. Empathy is good, and many people believe that to have a better world, we need to put ourselves in other's shoes. We need to feel their pain. We need to have empathy for others. However, you argue that not only is this not right, but empathy, in fact makes the world a lot worse i love this when yeah. when you tell people that you've been writing a book against empathy you often get some pretty suspicious uh, looks don't you yeah i mean some people when i started to write this book i would tell people i'm writing a book on empathy and they would like smile and then i would say i'm against it and they, <laughs> they look shocked sometimes they'd laugh or they they and and i i've come to realize that writing a book called against empathy is like writing a book like against kittens or against world peace some people see empathy as this plain obvious good. How in the world could anybody be arguing against it? And I think part of the problem, we started off by talking a little bit about this, part of the problem is that people mean different things by empathy. Mm. So some people just use the term to mean anything good, to be moral, to be kind, to be loving. Mm -hmm. That's what empathy is. And I'm all for that. Um, other people use empathy to mean understanding. And I'm for that as well, though I don't necessarily, and we could talk about this, I don't necessarily see that as a moral good. So if I'm a really nice person, getting into your head and figuring out what you want, what makes you happy, that's great. I'll be able to improve your life that way. On the other hand, if I'm a psychopath or con man or seducer or torturer, getting into your head is also terrific because it enables me to mess with you and get what I want out of you. In any case, the sense of empathy I'm most interested in is what sometimes called emotional empathy, feeling another's pain, putting yourself in their shoes, feeling what they're feeling. And a lot of people think, well, that should be great. That's what makes us good people. But empathy has certain design flaws. It causes you to zoom in on a specific person. And a person you zoom in on, you feel empathy for, you're highly biased. I'm much more likely to feel empathy for you, this handsome white guy who kind of, you know, speaks with a nice accent and, and, and you're the kind of person I know, then empathy for somebody who frightens me or disgusts me or seems very alien to me. You know, this is common sense, but there's also a lot of neuroscience research. If right now you kind of clenched up in pain, I'd probably feel your pain. Not so much if you were a homeless person or somebody from Somalia or another country. Um, so there's that. Also, empathy is enumerate. It focuses on one over many. So one way I like to put it in my book is, it's because of empathy we often care more about a little girl stuck in a well than we do about all of climate change or things that could affect millions of people. So my argument is that 
We should care about people. We should love them. But when it comes to making decisions as to how to get about in the world, and I'm talking about policy now, we could also talk about personal decisions. We're better off not relying on empathy. Because mm. I mean, it some of the the couple of big things. I mean, yeah. On the one hand, it like it what misdirects our actions, and it can also be used as a tool for violence and aggression. Because uh, when some people think of empathy, then like you said, we're we thinking of what like puppies, charity, helping yeah. others. But you think actually of going to war. Why? Why is that? Because when you look at at the atrocities people commit, um, lynchings in the American South, attacks on Jews in in, in uh, Germany of the 1930s and 1940s, anti-immigrant movements right now, there's all sorts of reasons for this. I'm not going to say empathy is even number one, but what you always see, without exception, is people trying to get you to feel um, empathy for those who suffer. And Adam Smith in the 1700s said, look. Once you feel empathy for somebody who suffers, the corresponding feeling you'll get is you'll want to strike back at whoever made them suffer. And so I'm not as familiar with the scene in, in, in Europe and the rest of the world, but in the United States, there's a fair amount of discussion about immigration and Muslims. And there's a lot of rhetoric by certain politicians where they'll tell you stories about innocent people, this woman who gets raped, this guy who gets assaulted, this family you know, whose life has been disrupted because they lost their jobs. And they'll tell these stories and then they'll direct the anger that, that that you get from this towards immigrant groups. And so empathy is used by unscrupulous people as a weapon. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And so it, it's, it can often create uh, an action which is completely uh, massively blown out of proportion to... For example, like you're saying, how they could talk, use that one story, and that one story that can uh, really have an emotional connection could cause vast actions which are not in proportion to. Is that is that, is that right as well? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm not a pacifist. Sometimes you know, um, sometimes stories about suffering people across the world are a good reason to intervene with military and other ways. You know, I think, but but a decision has to be made based on a a cost-benefit analysis. And that sounds cold, but it really means what will lead to the, less, the, the smallest amount of suffering and the biggest amount of benefit. And too many times in political discourse, social discourse, you say there's these victims, they're in Poland, they're in uh, 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 Uganda, they're, they're in Aleppo, and we feel tremendous feelings for them. And then the next response is, we gotta go bomb the crap out of people. And Bombing the crap out of people may be a moral decision and a right decision sometimes, but often it's disproportionate. Often it makes the world worse. In the run-up to the Iraq war, in what, in 2003, the newspapers in it were filled with stories about the atrocities committed by Saddam Hussein and his sons. And they were real stories. They were just these gross, I still remember the details of some of it. Horrific, the torture chambers and rape and everything. And, and this was used to mobilize a war which in retrospect, most people believe was a tragic and terrible mistake. So as you put it, 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 it blows things out of proportion. It steals from our rationality. Mm. And there was a study that looked at emphatic responses to uh, AIDS victims. And so if, if, P, if somebody got AIDS through, what was it, um, a, a blood fusion, then empathy flowed yep. freely. However, a separate group got told that uh, they, somebody got AIDS through unprotected sex, then that shut down empathy. So it so depending on what our our moral compass says, then we're very biased, aren't we? 
We are. And it's an interesting fact about empathy. Some people see caring about people, feeling empathy as a motivator for moral choices. But more often it's the other way around, which is you have a moral worldview. And that worldview will tell you who to feel empathy for. I got into a disagreement for British academic over the causes of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And his position is that they should, people should just feel more empathy and then they wouldn't get into fights. But, but the way I see it, and a lot of evidence for this is, Israelis feel an enormous amount of empathy for Israelis. Palestinians feel tremendous empathy for Palestinians. But because they recognize themselves as falling to different groups with long-standing grievances, they don't feel empathy for the others. Just like you won't, just like subjects in this study you're describing, don't feel empathy for people with AIDS. They feel it's their own damn fault. There are studies uh, where you look at homeless people and their brains being scanned as you do it. And like, not just empathy, but just about all of social understanding shuts down. They're disgusting. They're not people. I'm not going to look at them. But you and I could step back and we're reflective moral people and say, well, okay, that's our gut feelings, but our gut feelings are wrong. Our gut feelings are such that an Israeli life and a Palestinian life both count, that homeless people are people, and as, as much as you or me or our children or whatever. But to the extent we do that, we're, over, we're transcending our empathic responses. Yeah. That idea of us caring more about our own group than other groups, um, I think it was kind of, uh, it's, it's illustrated in quite an... Uh quite an extreme and quite almost a humorous way with the, uh, the, the study conducted in Europe about football or soccer, soccer fans. Oh, yeah. I, I read that and I actually quite laughed. Would you, could you uh, share that? Yeah, what they got is they got, they got these male uh, uh, subjects to sit with a scanner and then they watched um, other men in pain. I think they got electric shocks. And, a typical, and, and so if the men were described as the fans of the same soccer team as the subject, you get empathy. That in fact, they would, in some sense, almost literally feel the other person's pain. But if the men were described as fans of a different soccer team, you don't get empathy. The empathy shuts down. And correspondingly, you actually get this, this buzz in parts of the brain associated with pleasure. They're enjoying watching this guy being shocked. And this is not, this is not you know, the, 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 the Palestinians and the Israelis. It's not, it's, not, it, it's not Nazis. It's just a different freaking soccer team. But that's enough to trigger a change. And again, we have these feelings, and, and empathic feelings serve their role in intimate relationships, source of pleasure. But, but the mistake is to say, well, that's how I should base my decisions. When it comes to making moral decisions, I should listen to my feelings. I should listen to my heart. And what I would argue is that's, that's just backwards. Mm. We should listen to our, to our heads and we should recognize that our feelings, our gut feelings, are subject to these laughable distortions and biases. Yeah, so we're, we're, not, we're not as rational as we'd like to think we are. <laughs> well, I think maybe another way of putting it is we are rational, but we sometimes choose not to use our rationality. And I think that's a terrible and tragic mistake. Mm. And we're, we're big issues like, I don't know, say we're talking about something like, I don't know, climate change. Um, the empathy can actually often encourage inaction can't it how 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 can this encourage just us to be yeah in action and un unmobilized to change so to the extent we care climate change is a fascinating case as a psychologist because in some way it's the perfect example of something which is tremendously significant maybe the most significant thing but from a gut feeling it actually has very little effect there's no villain 
we are often mobilized by evil people. There's no villain here to to. We don't have to kill anybody. There's no war to be had. The climate change is gradual and slow. So there's nothing that says, oh, my God, here's look what's happening. It's sort of it's projections. But most of all, this is getting what you're saying. Climate change has few identifiable victims. We can point to say, you see that guy? Um, that guy lost his arms because of climate change. That baby died because of climate change. Now, there are some cases more and more these days where sort of isolated populations are, are beginning to suffer in real ways. But for the most part, even there, well, there's all sorts of factors. You can't say just because climate change makes a, a, a large storm more probable, you can't say, well, that we can blame climate change for. So climate change carries with it no identifiable victims, really nobody to feel empathy towards. While the actions that could circumvent climate change, like raising taxes on, uh, on, on certain products, they do have identifiable victims. You raise gasoline taxes, I will pull out some guy who makes his living driving a truck who's now out of work. And so empathy favors concern for the immediate, the here and now, the concrete. And it, it, it causes us to have a lot less of an interest for broader statistical concerns. And as a result, it leads us again to make the wrong choices. And on like another thing like that, in terms of, let's say, free speech, empathy always sides on the censor. That was, an, that was another interesting one. So I, as you may know, there's, there's debates in, over campus in, in, in universities, particularly in the States, but I think also in, in England and the rest of Europe, um, over uh, free speech issues and the boundaries of free speech. What should professors and students be allowed to say? Uh, be punished for, and so on. And there's, a, of course, a broader question of free speech in general. Um, to what, For instance, uh, uh, you're in London now. The UK has often thought about blasphemy laws. These often come up. Should, should they reinstate blasphemy laws where somebody could be punished for offending a religion, say Islam? And there's actually some interesting debates here. And, and there's, there's pluses and minuses, pros and cons. I think if you're a utilitarian, then you can't be adamant about it. So you say, maybe some restrictions are justified. But when you start feeling, when you use the empathy as a guide to moral decisions, you're always going to want to shut down people's speech. Because the benefits of speaking are, you know, oh, you disseminate ideas, you, it's part of human freedom and so on. But the harms of speech are tangible and individual. If you um, if, if 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 you if you tell me that um, that you don't respect me because I'm a Jew and my feelings get really hurt, I'm a victim here. You, you're not a victim. So it, it wouldn't people seeing this who think with their empathy would be say, well, let's shut this guy up. And a lot of cases on campus come when people say, honest to God, offensive things that really hurt people. And um, and the movement to shut these people up, to punish them, is fed by empathy, while the free speech movement to defend the offensive people draws upon other things. And so so I think their empathy leads you to a certain answer, which is not necessarily right, which is shutting down speech. And then would that be a spiral? Since suddenly if you're shutting down one bit of speech and the next bit, and then before you know it, we're living in a world where what, you can't even open your mouth without fear of, like, offending somebody? Is it, is that, would that, like, of, like, get out of control? I think it would. I also think that what happens is that, uh, that, that the, what it is to suffer from somebody's speech depends on your, your psychology. Mm. Um, so, so then the issue of free speech becomes, 
contingent becomes related to how easily offended people are. So, um, so if I'm enraged because you say something about my religion or you describe me with the wrong pronoun or you make fun of my, uh, my, 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 my ethnicity, my gender or whatever, however big my space of being offended is, free speech would narrow down accordingly. And, and again, you don't want to hurt people unnecessarily. If you're just yeah. a utilitarian, you want to make the world less suffering, then harming people is a cost. But my own feeling is almost always the benefits of speech outweigh that cost. Okay, so we've come touched on them a little bit, but if we kind of accept that, okay, empathy, which has been sort of this, the golden child, the golden like moral tool, if we're like, okay, shit, it's not, it's not as good as we think, we, we kind of touched on some of it, you know, in terms of being the rational, but how can, what is the answer? How can we leave, how can we have a better way? How can we go through life without, I guess, being too mathematical and scientific about every single choice? How can we still have the emotion and, you know, but, I don't know, lead a better moral choices, I guess? Yeah, so there, there's two questions there. So one question is, how do we rely less on empathy? And... I'm kind of an optimist in this because we've done it before. So most most of the fact that empathy is biased and 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 but also persuasive and powerful is also true of racist biases. Um, you know, people I think are have always been intuitively racist in a sense, favoring their own. But it's not an insolvable problem. We can sort of struggle to override it. We can make a taboo to um, to try to motivate people with racist appeals. We could try to be less racist ourselves through contemplation, through questioning our own motives. And I think we do the same thing with empathy. I think one example of this is the effective altruism movement, where people say, I want to give my money and my time to charity. But you know something? I'm not going to do it based on who has the prettiest pictures and who tells the nicest stories. I'm going to go and see what charities give you the most bang for the buck, what make the most people happy. So that's one aspect of thing, lowering empathy. The second aspect is what you're talking about, which is um, we don't want to be entirely cold-blooded. If we're entirely cold-blooded, then we'll come up with the right answers as to what could do the most good. We won't be motivated to do them. Mm. And so we want to nurture our compassion and kindness. And, you know, there's, there's different ways. Um, a lot of my friends are really into meditation as the way to do it. And meditation, I talk, I talk about this in my book, may increase compassion and actually may decrease empathy might make you see somebody who's suffering, may increase your desire to help them, but not make you suffer. And, and, and meditators who are actively involved in helping people claim to do it joyously. If you're highly, if you're full of empathy and you help people who are suffering, you will suffer. But if you are full of compassion and love and you help people, you will do it, you know, you will enjoy it. You will, you will, you, you will be fueled by it. Well, so I guess you could almost be a bit more... Um bird's eye view just looking at looking down at the scene and then actually making taking that correct course as opposed to being overwhelmed by uh i don't know by standing there in their shoes and being overwhelmed by the emotion you can actually look at it and just make those decisions which are loving which are compassionate which are kind but not fueled through that the emphatic pull that urge that's a that's a perfect um that's a perfect summary and and um, and I, I would think that um, that the best people at helping take take helping forget about policy and and policy decisions take people like doctors and therapists and and uh, emergency workers and ambulance drivers and all that the best people at helping are not people who get awash with the suffering of people they're dealing with. 
Those are people who don't make it through training. Those are people who quit after the first month. The best people care about others, but they have a distance. They don't feel their pain. They don't indulge, actually, in, in the feeling of others' pain. I have a friend of mine who's a therapist, and uh, she sees, you know, she tells me she will see like eight patients in a row, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, boom, 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 boom. And I'm thinking that if I had to deal with eight hour-long meetings with depressed, anxious, screwed-up people, by the end of the day, I would shoot myself. I would be so much caught up in their miseries. But she says, no, she loves it. She um, she cares about her, her patients. She tries to understand them. But she's she thinks of them as as she thinks of her problems as things to be solved. She has and she's intensely curious about them, but she doesn't pick up their feelings. And that's critical for being a good helper. That's fascinating. Yeah, I guess because we a lot. I guess we've all because when you're saying that, I mean, I guess you were thinking like, okay, we've all got we have friends who often like will, will need us at times of need. You know, we have people who are upset, and you want to be a good friend. You want to be a loving brother, mother, father, sister, but at the same time, it's hard to take on all those emotions. So you can actually connect with people. You can be a good friend, but without having to drown yourself in, in, in those emotions. Exactly. And you know, so think about it. Suppose, suppose I come to you, you're my friend. I'm coming to you. I'm freaking out. I'm really anxious. What do I want from you? I don't want you to get anxious. I don't want you to have a panic attack in front of me. Then I have two problems. I have my problem. I have your problem. What I want is for you to say, you know, hey, dude, calm down. Let's, let's work this out. I'm going to try to. And I want I want you to respond to my anxiety with my calm. If I'm deeply sad, I don't want you to burst into tears when you're talking to me. I want you to, to some extent, I mean, I don't want you to you kind of be, be delighted by my sadness, but I want you to sort of be a little bit happier than I am. And maybe, you know, cheer me up. Maybe say, look, it's not all, it doesn't all suck. There's a good side to things. Somebody will buy your book one day. <laughs> you, tell me, you, you give me the good news. And, uh, and, and so, so that's what we want from relationships, I think. We want people to care about us, to understand us, to, to empathize sometimes with our positive feelings, where if I'm really happy, you can pick up some of my happiness. That's not so bad. But, um, but, but in, for the most part, particularly with negative feelings, not to echo them, but to respond to them. I, I touched on, I mentioned a couple of things which you've, explored or be interested been interested in in the um in the intro over the course of like your career like what have been have there been like some serious sort of like paradigm shifts or have there been some sort of aha moments or where you just you you, you delved into like a research topic and then i don't know you, you discovered something that you didn't think or like, i don't know what's what's been a big sort of paradigm shifting moment for you oh there's been a few um i've been I've done collaborative work on the moral psychology of babies, what babies know. And I was, to some extent, skeptical as to whether young babies could know very much about morality. And I was startled to find that even before their first birthday, babies could tell good guys from bad guys. They have a sense of justice and fairness. And so, so that, that's something which surprised me. More recently, I've been doing a lot of research into the self and what we think about our personal our self right now and our self in the future. And I'm becoming swayed by a view, and, and this is not a natural view for me, swayed by a view actually held by the philosopher Derek Parfit, who just passed away last week, which is that the idea of personal identity, the idea that you're the same person you'll be a week from now or a year from now, is largely an illusion. 
and there's a real substantial sense in which there's just different people across different spans of time who share relationships, who are similar. You're very going to be very similar right now to yourself a year from now. And so there's a real good sense where we call you the same person. But I think we overstate our personal continuity. And that's something which I'm sort of struggling with. And maybe we'll explore in my next book. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Um, it's a good thing you warned me ahead of time. You'd ask me this question. <laughs> uh, so my favorite line is from Freud, where Freud said, the most important things in life are love and work. And um, it turns out Freud didn't actually say that. Because uh, <laughs> I, I asked, a, I couldn't find it anywhere. And I asked a Freud scholar, and said, oh, that's just an urban legend. Freud Freud's student uh, quoted Freud on this. And then when he was pressed, he said, okay, I made it up. But anyway, it's still a great idea, love and work. And, and what I take that as, both terms meaning broadly. Uh, um, one, um, love meaning relationships, personal relationships, could be romantic, could be sexual, but it also could be, could be uh, you know, for your kids or for your parents or for your friends. Um, and work is long-term projects. It doesn't mean necessarily putting on a suit and take the 815 to the city and, and doing that sort of thing, but, but just some sort of long-term project um, that, that provides meaning to your life. And I think if you could tick off love and tick off work, then you have a fulfilled life. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a big impact on their lives? Well, well as somebody who sometimes writes for the public um, and online, uh, if your listeners are writers, are journalists, or authors, never ever read the comments. Um, <laughs> so, so more seriously, I guess I guess I'll, 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 I I I have no good answer to this. So I'll just take something which two things which I've been doing right now, which is um, I'm trying to meditate a little bit each day, ten minutes, and and I also try every day, no matter what, to do some reading a novel, a nonfiction book, typically at night, a, a physical book. And I think what those two things share and have in common is, among other benefits, they take you outside yourself. They take you outside your head where all these sort of focus on projects and your own stuff and everything. And for a bit, they provide some, some peace and some distance. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Oh, um... If you Google me, you'll get my, my web page, and that will connect you to uh, my articles, my publications, and my articles and my books. Um, but you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, Paul Bloom at Yale. Paul Bloom, A-T-Y-A-L-E, one word. And uh, that's, how, that's how to track my exciting life. I will, I will link that all up as well. If you go to spiritpig.com underneath the interview i will put your twitter i'll put your yale things i'll make it easy for you guys spiritpig.com paul thank you so much fascinating topic and yeah you've um every time i was like right slowly i'm like working out okay empathy's good then we've got this and that gratitude presence and then you blindsided me of like no empathy's not so good so i'm i'm glad that you've corrected me now i've got to i've got to relook at my my notes <laughs> Well, well, I'm glad it could cause some influence. This, you're a great interviewer. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Thank now. you.